Okay, well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians is where we'll be this morning. And um, you've got notes in your bulletin, you'll want to follow along with those this morning as well. We're getting back into the book of 1 Corinthians, continuing the sermon series through the whole book, and we will begin chapter 3 today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I trust that you all have handled a crazy week uh, decently, I guess is a uh, word I could use. You've, you've handled it decently in your hearts and uh, in the world around you. We need to continue to live by faith. We don't live by sight. We don't put our trust in man. We don't put our trust in anything in this world, but we trust in the Lord alone. And uh, that's how we live our lives. So no matter... You know, if we are happy or unhappy with uh, political things, whether we have lots of confidence in uh, some sort of a system or no confidence in some system, uh, ultimately all of our confidence is in the Lord, the sovereign ruler of the universe who ordains all that comes to pass by the counsel of His will alone. We take comfort in that. Uh, He doesn't consult with us before He ordains things, and uh, that's a good thing. (laughs) He... He has a good and perfect will, and we have confidence in that alone. Well, let us uh, pray together, and then we'll jump into uh, the text today. Father, thank You so much for Your kindness toward us, Your patience, Your grace, Your mercy, Your love that we have experienced so much, not only in our lives, but even in this past week and today. We have experienced so much of your goodness, and we thank you for it. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word, that we have this revelation from you to lean on, that we're not out searching for the newest, latest idea, but that we have an old, old story, and we have the text of Holy Scripture to guide our thinking. We have an unchanging message of good news, and we have your revelation as relevant as ever today. Lord, I ask that this morning as we look into your word that you would bless this time, that you would make this truly a blessed time for each one of us, that we would come away understanding more of who you are and who we are, and that we would be more focused for the week ahead. I ask that though I am a sinner both by nature and by choice, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be so clear to your people and that we would um, just all, each one of us, be more like our Savior Jesus because of the time that we spend learning and growing together today. And I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want us to spend the first half of the message today thinking about sanctification. And there are all kinds of definitions of sanctification out there, all kinds of ways we could describe what sanctification is. But to give you just a quick idea, a short phrase of this bigger theological word, sanctification, what it means in reference to today's passage is a lifelong progression of growing in Christ. A lifelong progression of of growing in Christ. That's what's in view today when I speak 
of sanctification, a lifelong progression of growing in Christ. And we have to have some theological background today as we jump into the text because on paper, we could maybe write out our views of what sanctification looks like, how it should go. Uh, And that's pretty simple to write it out and to say, okay, well, as a Christian, we're saved by grace, and now in grace we grow this way, A, B, C, X, Y, Z, and you grow and you become more like Jesus. And we can write all that out and say it's easy, it's simple. But real life doesn't really work out that way, does it? (laughs) It's a lot messier in real life. Anytime you throw sinners into the mix with, you know, each one of us, though we're redeemed, we are still trapped in these bodies of death. And things get messy, things get confusing, and we need to wrestle with that this morning. And I want to talk about a movement called the Higher Life Movement as we begin. And I bring that up here in this church today because in our types of circles historically, this view of sanctification that's found in the Higher Life Movement has been popular. Uh, It started off as a view of John Wesley. Some of you will recognize that name. John and Charles Wesley are recognized for many things, but they were the beginnings of the movement known today as Methodism, the Methodist Church. I I don't know if we have any Methodist churches in our county uh, at all. Um, They're not super popular in Utah, but they exist. Just trust me, okay? So maybe you've never had any personal experience with them, but they exist, and uh, sadly, many of them exist in a very dead state today. But uh, John Wesley, his view of sanctification became known as the higher life movement. In the Pentecostal tradition, that denomination, uh, the higher life movement is emphasized quite a bit. And then maybe a couple of names that will be closer to home for you, D.L. Moody and Charles Ryrie both uh, taught a version of the higher life movement. And that's mainly why I want to talk about it today is because whether or not you recognize their names, in a variety of ways, you have been influenced uh, by their theology, much of which is very good and we would totally agree on. But in this area, there are some disagreements that need to be discussed. Um, I was thinking, knowing I was going to bring up these names, I was thinking during uh, that first hymn, The Solid Rock, it's a little phrase that would be said in our small Christian circles, my hope is built on nothing less than Ryrie's notes and Moody Press. Uh, and... Uh, so yeah, our circles like these guys, um, but, but let's talk about this for a moment. In the higher life movement, in this view of sanctification, salvation is defined as belief only without repentance, okay? The first thing you need to know, salvation is viewed as belief only without repentance. It's hardly more than an acknowledgement in some cases where if someone, perhaps even at a very young age... Uh, simply hears the name Jesus and says, yes, I believe that, Uh, then from that moment forward, we can then view that person as a truly saved person regardless of anything that follows. Uh, That is a common view of salvation in this movement. And additionally, sanctification, in this view, sanctification does not begin with salvation. Rather, sanctification begins with the crisis. So sanctification and salvation are so separated in this view that someone can be saved without any experience of sanctification in his or her life. Sanctification is viewed as a second work of God that depends on man's willingness. So many in this movement actually originally, 
well, maybe not originally, but historically, many in this movement have been Calvinistic, believing that God alone saves without man's involvement, that God redeems uh, His work alone. But sanctification then waits on man's willingness. Sanctification is something that comes after. It doesn't happen right after salvation. So, other things about this movement or other ways to look at it. At a point in time, according to the higher life movement, at a point in time, a believer can choose to reject carnality and then become a disciple. So perhaps some of you have heard the term carnal Christian before. Well, that person is just a carnal Christian. That person is saved, though that person's living like the devil and has never uh, done anything that has represented Christ-like behavior. Well, that person's just a carnal Christian, not yet a disciple. That's where this terminology comes from, is the belief that a person can be saved without any sanctification in that person's life and can remain in a carnal state as a redeemed soul. A, consist, or a commitment to holiness isn't a fruit of salvation in this view. A person can be saved without any commitment to holy living because a person near, needs to just merely acknowledge Jesus, doesn't need to repent but just acknowledge Jesus and be saved. Therefore, in this view, disciples are known as spiritual Christians, and all other Christians are then known as carnal Christians. You can see how that might create a little bit of a battle within God's church, huh? Are you spiritual or are you carnal? Well, let's, uh, let's check your credentials and see who, who's holier than thou. And some have taken it so far to believe that in that carnal state, believing certain Christians can be carnal, that those Christians can even deny the lordship of Jesus and drop out of Christianity altogether, yet be redeemed. It's uh, a view that's, that was mainly uh, pushed by Zane Hodges. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Uh, John MacArthur wrote a response to his book, and then Zane Hodges wrote a response to John MacArthur's response, and on and on it goes. But uh, the view that a carnal Christian could even go to the extreme of denying Jesus, become a Buddhist, practice a homosexual lifestyle, whatever it may be, and still be considered a Christian, just a carnal Christian. Well, that is not what the elders of this church believe or teach, and we need to look to the New Testament to understand these terms, spiritual and carnal, because these terms are used in Scripture. In fact, these terms are used in reference to Christians themselves in our very text today in 1 Corinthians. And so let's look at this together, actually backing up to chapter 2 where Mark preached a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. What we'll see in this passage is that there aren't some Christians who are spiritual, but in fact, all Christians are spiritual because all Christians have the Spirit of God. Not just some, but all. Let's start in verse 12 together of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2.12. It says, now we have received. Now, he's using we here, and you have to think about who the we is, the first person plural. I believe this includes the Corinthians themselves. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in, our, in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, but a natural man, or a carnal man, you could say, 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, again, I believe all Christians, have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. All Christians are spiritual because they have the Spirit, because they have the mind of Christ. They are not a subset within Christianity. It is all Christians who are spiritual. And beyond that, all Christians are partaking in sanctification. And we can see that in this very letter. Just look back to chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We see in verse 2, as Paul opens this letter to them, he says, "...to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling." Those who have been sanctified. In the Christian life, sanctification can be viewed as past, present, and future. And here we see in the past tense that the Corinthians have been sanctified, meaning in their salvation they were given a holiness. Positionally, they were considered holy because of their faith in Jesus. Turn with me to chapter 6, same book, 1 Corinthians, same letter to the same people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after a long list of sins that prevent people from entering the kingdom of God, Paul says. This includes thievery, fornication, idolatry, etc. He says in verse 11, "...such were some of you." But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Their sanctification positionally, that they were then at the moment of belief in Jesus, truly believing in Jesus, they were considered to be holy, they were set apart from the world, that did affect them in deep ways. It affected their behavior because they used to act in all these sinful ways as listed in verses 9 and 10. But they were justified. They were sanctified. It's an ongoing reality for the Christian. It's not just past, it's present. Stay in chapter 6. Look down at verse 19 with me. Paul says in verse 19, "...do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own?" Some people might look at the Corinthians and just judging by the way that they kept going back into sin, say, well, they couldn't have been Christians, but Paul says, you have the Spirit of God. Well, they must have been carnal Christians. Well, that's not the case. They were being sanctified by that Spirit of God. In Philippians chapter 2, what does it say in Philippians 2 about the Holy Spirit's ministry in us? It is God Himself in us willing and working His will. If we have the Spirit of God, He isn't just sitting there twiddling His thumbs while we go and live however we want for however long we want, but the Holy Spirit is in us producing fruit, and He's convicting us, isn't He? The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. How much more does He convict the Christian of these things? And how much more does He bring to light some specific sin that in our flesh we don't see? The Holy Spirit works in us continually, and there will be a great moment of sanctification for all Christians. Turn with me to the end of chapter 15, still 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. 
This is the culmination of our sanctification. Starting in verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, so really down toward the end. Paul writes to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, When this perishable body will have put on the imperishable body, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. All Christians experience the past sanctification. We can say of every believer here this morning, you have been sanctified. And each and every one of you experience the present tense sanctification. You are being sanctified. Some days are better than others, aren't they? (laughs) But you are being sanctified. And we can say of every Christian in this room, you will be sanctified. This mortal body will put on immortality, and you will be in glory with the Lord. Every single Christian, all three aspects. Andrew Nicelli has written this, the New Testament teaches that from the moment of justification, progressive sanctification is actual, not merely potential or possible for all Christians. It is impossible for a Christian to be justified without at the same time experiencing progressive sanctification. It is progressive for each and every one of us. But it's also messy, isn't it? It is messy. We can't act like sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness is a, just a straight graph uh, up and to the right with no looking back. There are mountaintops and there are valleys, aren't there? There are days and stretches of days when we're walking in holiness and we're experiencing what we might call victory, and there are days when we feel just beat up with our sin, where we just feel like we've received some bruises, just getting beat up by our own pride, where we're experiencing internal bleeding from the sin that dwells within. Isn't that so true? Well, let's look at it in the life of Paul. Turn back one book to the book of Romans, right before 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans 7, starting at verse 14. Paul himself, an apostle called by God to lead in the early church, Surely he didn't experience any bad days, did he? Or all of his bad days, perhaps, could be written off as having to do with other people influencing him. Surely in himself he didn't deal with any pride, or in himself he he didn't deal with any sin that was just difficult to fight. Well, let's look at his own words. Romans 7, starting at verse 14, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. I want you to see if you can relate with Paul here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil thing that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Can you relate to that a little bit? What am I doing? I hate this. I hate doing this again. I hate that this is the millionth time I've had to ask for forgiveness for this. Sin is just dwelling in us. But we have the mind of Christ. And there's a war going on. We have the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling, evicting us of that sin. And when we're back on our knees again, and hopefully without dry eyes... When we're back and confessing these things again, we should be comforted that we are feeling the weight of it. Because when God hands someone over to their sin, they don't feel bad about it. But they're given over to a debased mind to do those things which are improper, and they rejoice in it, they boast in it. But when God is faithful to us because of the Holy Spirit He has given us, and He brings us to our knees, we will feel awful and we should feel awful because of sin. But at the same time, we should rejoice and take great comfort and find great peace in the fact that He has not left us to ourselves. He has not abandoned His people. And the war is long, it's to the day you die, and it's painful, and as soon as you take care of one sin, so you think another sin pops up that was hiding behind it, and it doesn't end. But this is the war you were called to fight with the whole armor of God. You put it on and you serve God because of His grace and His faithfulness to give you a willingness to fight. That He doesn't leave you, but that He's right there with you each and every step of the way. So sanctification is messy, but it's happening to every Christian. God is doing it. This is His design. I should make a note, too. I had a typo in your notes. If you're wondering what that number five is there for, it's not supposed to be there. So, don't want you to get distracted because of that. Now, as we're, again, still thinking about this from a theological perspective, summing up the Bible's whole teaching on this topic, what's going on with us when we're not growing? What's going on with us in those moments when we've turned aside or those stretches of time when we're not living for the Lord? And I think we need to answer this honestly. We need to recognize what's happening in us because as Christians, we're not immune to grievous sins, are we? 
as Christians, we can still do terrible things and we can have periods of time in our lives that are really awful, dark times in our lives. And what's going on? Well, two things are happening, one of two things or both. The first is that we're giving in to the world. And as a Christian, you can still do that. You have temptations that exist outside of you, don't you, that are around you all the time, that are calling for you to come to them. You have all these temptations. Just as Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, we know this. We, we live life and we have all these possible avenues to rebel against the Lord, our Savior. And the world calls us to sin. Yet another aspect is not just giving into the world, but giving into our own flesh. Perhaps it's more of a temptation than the world, is your own flesh. You don't need the world out there calling for you because you're still in this body of death, and you're dealing with the own, the, your own things, the, the things that bubble up from within, that call you to sin because you are still in this fleshly body. And so in this sense, every Christian will temporarily have moments of carnality or stretches of time of carnality in that sense. You will have times when you give into the world or give into your flesh. That's every time you sin. And have any of you figured out how to stop doing that yet? Show of hands. Because <laughs> you, you should preach if that's the case. Uh, I would gladly allow you to instruct me on that. You will continue to sin and to turn back to these things that you're to stay away from. Bruce Demarest has written this. It's a paragraph, but I really wanted to share it with you. Every Christian is characterized by a measure of holiness and truth on the one hand, and by a dose of carnality and worldliness on the other. The Christian is a pilgrim who progresses along the spectrum toward holiness and maturity in Christ. The believer does not arise one morning as a carnal Christian and settle that night as a spiritual Christian. The terms spiritual and carnal apply to every Christian, although not in equal measure or in the same respects. Each of us struggles with carnality in different ways and with varying intensity as we press toward the goal of our high calling in Christ. Each one of us through this life has a measure of holiness and truth and a measure of carnality, don't we? If you're without carnality, raise your hand. <laughs> if we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar, First John, and the truth is not in us. So we all have a measure of truth and holiness, and we all have a measure of carnality that we battle in this Christian life. But let me say clearly, any person who is to the point of, or, or however you want to phrase it, of denying Jesus' lordship or dropping out of the Christian life altogether, that serves as grounds for a deeper conversation about salvation itself. No true believer will deny Jesus as Lord or drop out of the Christian life. Every Christian is held by God, and our confession is what we encourage each other with, isn't it? Our confession of Jesus as Lord and what He has done for us. And so, anytime someone has gotten to that point, you certainly need to have a gospel conversation with that person. And the answer for Christians struggling with sin, battling the flesh, seeking to grow in Christ, experiencing the ups and downs of sanctification, the answer is continual repentance and faith through God's channels of grace. 
You know, uh, if you go to the doctor, if you're getting a, an annual physical and uh, maybe things are just a little off, it's very common for doctors to start with some of the more, more basic principles. How's your diet? You getting enough water? Get enough sleep? You exercising at all? <laughs> uh, those are basic things in life. And just like diet and water and exercise, we have basic channels of grace that God has given us. He's given us His Word. He's given us prayer that we might communicate with Him. And He's given us each other, hasn't He? These are the basics of the Christian life, and this is how we grow as Christians. The answer to our struggles are the basic means or channels of God's grace. As we make an effort to follow God's commands, we depend on these channels of grace, His very grace. Another quote from David Mathis, he says, It is God's grace that enables us to make choices and expend effort to seek more of God. It is a gift that we would have the desire for and take action to avail ourselves of the means. And he, he phrases it in a pretty cute way. The means of His grace, His voice, the Word, His ear, prayer, and His people, fellowship. His voice, His ear, and His, his people. That's how we are to grow. So I hope that short conversation helps us understand what's going on with the Corinthians. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 3. I want us to have that understanding as we enter into this text because this text has been used to teach something different. And I want us to understand of the Bible's whole teaching on sanctification and growth. Let's read this together, 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? I want us to see a couple of brief things. In verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, notice that Paul calls these Corinthians brothers and sisters. He refers to them as brethren. He affirms them in their standing as Christians with this term. It had to be comforting for the Corinthians and um, for the Galatians on occasion also when receiving a strong rebuke from someone like Paul in the midst of that to be called a brother. That has to be a form of encouragement for them, that Paul was affirming their standing as Christians. And then he makes reference to their slow growth at the beginning. Notice it says there in verse 1, he said, he said I could not speak to you, um, but I spoke to you as men of flesh. I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. And in verse 2, I gave, past tense, I gave you milk to drink, for you were, past tense, not yet able to receive it. Paul is focusing on those 18 months he was in Corinth, and he was uh, evangelizing the city of Corinth. He was discipling new believers in Corinth, and he was, God's grace, helping a church be established in the city. And he's referring to their beginnings as slow growth. When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you like spiritual people. And certainly they remembered that. Certainly they remembered how they were, those initial conversations they had with Paul. 
Paul saying basic things to them. Remember, these are mostly Gentile Greeks. There are some Jews, but mostly Gentile Greeks. Paul had to say things like, this is called a Bible, <laughs> right? They had the Hebrew Scriptures. He would say, Psalms, they are like songs. He had to teach them like they knew nothing. He had to instruct them in the very basic principles of God. And you see here in verse 2, he refers to that time as him giving them milk to drink. Paul was giving them milk to drink, it says. But then he goes on to say in verse 2, even now you still need milk. Even now you're not able to have solid food. Even now. So their slow growth at the start for those first 18 months has continued on. And they are still slow to grow in Christ from Paul's uh, expectations. The report about their factions is his exhibit A. Look down at verse 3 with me. In verse 3, he says, he points to this specific thing, jealousy and strife, acting like mere men. Jealousy and strife was the big example of how they were still fleshly. And look at verse 4. This is what he was saying in chapter 1. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, and some of you are saying, I am of Apollos. They're picking worldly methods to seek to establish and advance their church. So when Paul says, you are still fleshly, he's using a strong term, the start of verse 3. You are not able to have solid food, for you are still fleshly. The Corinthians' growth in Christ, just like your growth in Christ, messy messy. They were brothers and sisters, Paul says. In fact, he refers to them here in this passage as infants in Christ. They are still infants in Christ. They're in Christ, yet their sanctification has been quite messy. They were spiritual people, indeed. They had the mind of Christ. They had the Spirit of God, but they were living like they were running with the devil. Gordon Fee wrote this in his commentary, The Corinthians are not only not giving evidence of life in the Spirit, but far worse, their quarrels and rivalry confirm that their behavior belongs to the present age with its fallen, twisted values. Whatever they may be saying about themselves, their behavior belies it. They may indeed be people of the Spirit. Unfortunately, they are living like the devil. That was the state of the Corinthian church. And this should not be the case for any church. This should not be the case for any believer. We weren't made anew, new creations, just to go on sinning, were we? We weren't made new creations and placed in a body of Christ that we might come together and be all divided, right? We were made new creations and we were given the gifts of God's grace that we might be unified in our faith, that we might grow in holiness and grow in righteousness and encourage one another together, even as we see day approaching. Therefore, they needed to be rebuked. Because this is not the case, they needed to be rebuked for the way that they were living. These terms, again in verse 3, the terms jealousy and strife that Paul points out, these are two terms that are listed in Galatians 5 as deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5 is that passage that gives us the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is, and I hope some of you can list it off in your mind, Right before that, the first two or three verses before the fruit of the Spirit talk about the fruit of the flesh, and it talks about a variety of sins included in that list, jealousy and strife. Paul is saying to them, instead of having the fruit of the Spirit, instead of showing the fruit of the Spirit, 
flesh. Jealousy, strife, factions, divisions. They had the Spirit of God, but they were living as though they didn't. Growing in Christ is messy, and we are totally dependent on God's grace, though we also have an obligation, don't we? When we are approached by one of God's servants and we are told about our sin, we have an obligation to change as long as they're using the Word of God. Because any time any of our thinking or any of our behavior runs contrary to the Word of God, we deserve a rebuke from the Word of God. And it's our obligation to conform ourselves to the life that God has laid out for us in Scripture. And we do so dependent on His grace. The Bible gives us a picture for this discussion in terms of growing in Christ, and it gives us the words maturity and immaturity. It talks about those who are mature in Christ and those who are still immature. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 5 outlines this for us. Whoever the author of the letter to the Hebrews was, some say Paul, and Jerry says not Paul, but uh, there are some people that believe it's Paul, and let's see what it says. Concerning him, this is speaking of the Melchizedek priesthood that only Christ has. It says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see here that there was an expectation of growth in the Christian life that was not met. By this time, you ought to have been teachers, and yet you are still acting like dependents little dependent infants who need everything given to them, who need everything done for them. And it's in relationship to the Word. Let's put verse 13 back up there, Joseph. Uh, Hebrews 5.13, you notice it says, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the Word of righteousness. How do we grow? Getting accustomed to the Word of righteousness. That's how we, that's how we grow. It's our relationship with the Word of God. And as we think about this, you know how cute it is when infants are unable to do things. How cute it is when they try to take their first scoops with a spoon or they try to walk and they toddle and fall, fall over, all those things. That's cute. But when it's an adult, it's tragic, isn't it? When it's an adult, it's a sad thing. And that's what this writer is saying to the Hebrews. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You should have grown up by now. There's an obligation to lean into God's channels of grace to grow. So we are to walk as spiritual people, not as fleshly people. We have been called spiritual people. We've been given the Spirit of God. And now the calling is on us to walk in that, to walk in the life God has for us. I want us to see a couple of verses in Galatians 5. Again, these will be on the screen. Galatians 5.16, Paul writes to this church in Galatia saying, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
That's the calling on our lives. And in verse 25 of Galatians 5, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Remember, each and every one of us is going to continue to sin, and each time we sin, we have abandoned walking by the Spirit, and we've turned back to our flesh. And that's going to happen. You will have moments of regression in your growth in Christ. But God is faithful, and we are to hear His voice in Scripture, and we are to hear the calling that He has on our lives to follow Jesus by the Spirit, to follow the commands of God for His people. So to sum this up, what's going on when we're not growing? Well, our walk is with the world. Our walk is with the flesh. That's what's happening when we're not growing. And the Christian can live this way temporarily, but the Christian cannot live this way permanently. There will be stretches of regression, but there cannot be a permanent denial of, God, of the Lordship of Christ. There cannot be a permanent dropping out of the Christian life because God is faithful to bring His people along. And to wrap this up, I want us to see in 1 John chapter 3. You can turn with me there toward the back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Listen to what Scripture says about the Christian walk, about the testimony that we have because of Christ in us. Listen to the calling that God has on our lives as spiritual people. 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, we, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared, or it has not appeared as yet, what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins, no one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Strong statements there in Scripture. We are to follow the Lord in sanctification. That is the Christian calling, and that's what you're able to do as spiritual people. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God in you. You are able, and God is faithful by His grace to carry you along, restoring you back through His means of grace, His Word, praying to Him, being with His people. Communion here today is a channel of God's grace. It's a subset of our fellowship together. It's what we do. 
to be renewed again in the gospel. God is faithful. Our testimony as Christians is vitally important. Think of the Corinthian testimony at that time. They were the new show in town, right? No one had ever seen a Christian church before in Corinth. This was the first time. And since Paul had left, they had grown into factions. They had split up and they had started waging war against each other based on these leaders they had appointed for themselves. What kind of testimony did this new church have in this city? A very, very poor testimony, didn't they? Our testimony as Christians individually is important, and as a church together is very important. We are to seek after God together because our testimony matters to a watching world. The Corinthians were sacrificing the reputation of the church for their own selfish motives. May that never be the case of us. May we never sacrifice the reputation of the truth for our own selfish desires. And one final note, a point of application. Through this whole conversation about sanctification, it may have popped into your mind, well, where does judging fit into all of this? Counseling others who may or may not be Christians, who have some sort of a testimony, but then their lives tell a different story. What do we do about that? That's a tough one, isn't it? (laughs) So the first thing we need to do is in great humility admit that we are not all-knowing beings and only God knows the hearts of every person. Only God knows for absolute certainty who is going to heaven and who is going to hell. Only God knows. Yet at the same time, we have to discern and we have to judge, don't we? It's part of this life. You can't get through this life without discerning and judging. Paul knew the Corinthians well, and he was able to say, you have the mind of Christ, you have the Spirit of God. Whereas any one of us in this room may have stumbled across that church and said, that's a dead church. No one in there knows the Lord. (laughs) We just don't know. And so what we need to do as we discern and judge is with that humility, uh, bring someone the gospel as though it was their first time hearing it, if you believe that's the case. If someone just has no evidence of any desire for anything holy, no, no evidence of any desire for God's people, for God's Word, then you may need to tell that person the gospel, and it might be their first time hearing it. Because maybe they thought they got saved, but it was under false pretenses. Maybe they heard a message that had nothing to do with sin, and they thought that's how they came to know Jesus. Maybe they've heard it. Maybe they've actually heard the gospel. Maybe they were in a church like this, and they heard it over and over and over again, and their hearts were never given to it. And it was merely just a mental acknowledgement of facts instead of a genuine trust in the Lord. But at the end of the day, you don't know. Only God knows. And so if you think a person needs the gospel, give that person the gospel, and Jesus does the rest. You're just an instrument in His hand. And be very careful about exalting someone or condemning somebody. Be very careful. That's the, uh, the preacher's rule of thumb when it comes to funerals, by the way. You don't preach them into heaven, you don't preach them into hell, okay? Well, it's kind of the rule in uh, dealing with living people, too, because only God knows. Only the Lord knows. And so, with great humility, we deal with one another in this, okay? Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You because You are faithful. You are full of grace. You are full of truth. 
You are full, full of everlasting kindness, and uh, we have experienced it. We have tasted and seen. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom, your wisdom, that we have in the gospel, in Christ himself, who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And Lord, we ask as we desire to follow you in this life, as we live for you, particularly Monday through Saturday when we're not gathered necessarily in this building, that we would uh, still be in communication with one another, encouraging one another, that we would be in your word, that we would have your ear in prayer. You've given it to us, cause us to take it up, that we would communicate with you and hear from you in your word. Lord, thank you so much for the ways that you've carried us along. We depend on you totally, thoroughly, completely. We love you and ask for the fruit of the Spirit to be cultivated in each one of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.